Welcome to Wall Street Weekly, a show where your hosts, George and Patrick, cut through the financial jargon to keep you educated and informed about the markets that affect our lives. Enjoy the show. You're listening to the overperforming, highly informing radio show on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is George Akla, joined alongside Patrick Scott, as always, to my right. And today we're talking not about me, but another short king, Michael Burry. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have seen the Big Short movie, which came out several years ago, then you know that we are in for a wild ride today, because this is quite the story. We're going to get into it more, uh, but yeah, I'm really excited for this episode. And don't think just because you've seen this movie that you know everything there is to know about Michael Burry, because there is a lot of nuance to this story, and Patrick, our research specialist on the program, is going to be diving into it. But before we dive in, as a quick reminder, this show is for entertainment purposes only. As always, contact a trusted financial representative before making any decisions on that matter. Before we get into Michael Burry, I don't want to leave our audience hanging on another story that we've talked about pretty much this whole semester. So the strikes are officially over at all of the big three automakers, which is actually a very big deal. Well, they lost billions in revenue and paid up for new contracts, Ford, Stellantis, and GM are officially all back to work. And if you're curious about the progression through these strikes, um, I wish there was a radio show that had multiple episodes where we talked about them. We did have multiple episodes. Oh, we did. That's right, Patrick. We had multiple episodes. (laughs) Wall Street Weekly can find those at Wall Street Pod on Twitter. Slash X. Slash X, yeah. And so I'd recommend you listen to our uh, September 14th episode and October 26th episode where we talk initially about the strikes first starting and then uh, last week, I guess, was about Ford and their contract resolution. This is the first part of a two-part series where we talk about the biggest bets on Wall Street. Part two, which is coming next week, we're going to be talking about the biggest losers, and that should be a lot of fun. But today we're going to talk about the big winner, popularized by The Big Short, the story of Michael Burry and the 2008 financial crisis. Patrick, can you tell us a little bit about Burry's background and I guess what makes him tick? Yeah, quick intro to Michael Burry, and this will be brief, but he was a Vanderbilt med school grad from California. So He graduated studying econ and medicine, and he's kind of an eccentric guy. If you watch the Big Short movie, you know, you've seen a depiction of his often strange behavior. His son has Asperger's, and this has led him to suspect that he probably has it as well. Yeah, one interesting thing about him is I like looking at his Twitter because, right or wrong, he has some pretty hot takes on the market. But he also loves doing cryptic tweets. So a few of them in 2023, early 2023, he just did sell with a period. 2023, it's possible today we found our Enron. We are all doomed August 25th, 2022. March 30th, 2023. I was wrong to say sell. And then there's another one where he just says, let me explain, dot, dot, dot. And then nothing to follow up. In the past, he's just randomly deleted his Twitter accounts and... Most of his Twitter is dedicated to his passion for heavy metal rock and roll, but every once in a while you get a nugget of wisdom there. So yeah, definitely interesting guy. Wow, that's that's really funny. Oh, and you said August 2023 with that We're All Doomed tweet. Um, I did see a recent article from August uh, that said he apparently made a $1.6 billion bet against the entire stock market, but there's a lot of speculation about that, whether it was actually $1.6 billion or not. And of course... 
you know, betting against the entire stock market is a pretty big deal, and especially with that much money. So the we're all doomed was actually 2022. I think the, oh, the cryptic okay. tweet before he shorted the market was, you have no idea how short I am. And people didn't know if it was sarcastic because he said stuff like that sarcastically in the past. But the $1.6 billion of options, people speculate that he spent, I think, between like 50 and $80 million on those. So he's betting against $1.6 billion of the underlying securities, it would be like Apple is $170. I could get all the exposure to Apple's gains and losses without having to spend $170. I could do that for much cheaper. So that's what Burry's trying to do. Gotcha. Well, with that, let's get into the story and the big short. So the story starts with the mortgage-backed security. And this is a collection of real estate debt that's combined and issued as a security. So something you can you know buy and sell. To give you a brief explanation of the process, step one, someone is going to take a loan from a bank to buy a home, a mortgage. Step two, the bank will make some money over time from the homeowner's payments, but decides to sell the loan to an investment bank for a lump sum. Now, the investment bank will receive the homeowner's mortgage payments. So the homeowner is technically paying the investment bank. Basically, the bank at this point has already secured a profit because they we're able to sell that loan at a profit to the investment and bank. And that's a lump sum, sort of, right? Yeah. Okay. And step three, the investment bank is going to bundle that loan and a bunch of others into a single security. Step four, the investment bank is going to sell this single security to an outside investor like George or myself. And step five, so now those mortgage payments from the homeowner go to the investor that bought the mortgage-backed security from the investment bank. Uh, that is, if the homeowner pays their mortgage. The bank writes loans and then very quickly sells them to, do, to the investment bank. Right. The investment bank tries to get rid of them as quickly as possible to another investor by bundling them. The government was actually buying some of these securities uh, from the investment banks, even though, as we'll get into later, they weren't great investments and the banks knew it. Yeah, kind of a game of hot potato. There's actually a name for that in investing called the greater fool theory. Have you heard about this? No, I have not. The idea is that you're not worried whether the asset is a good asset or a bad asset. What you're hoping is that someone will buy it from you at a higher price. Gotcha. Yeah. So the, I guess, would you say the underlying value is low, but... Yeah, the investor doesn't even think the underlying value is that good. They just think they can sell it to someone at a higher price. It's worth more to someone else. Okay. Yeah. Back to mortgage-backed securities, um, which, by the way, are denoted MBS. So if I say MBS, think mortgage-backed securities. Uh, they were considered very strong. Uh, they were AAA rated, which you know is the highest rating for debt risk, meaning there isn't much risk of someone defaulting on their loan. And also, we mentioned earlier, a few episodes back, that the U.S. government was downgraded from AAA to AA+. So AAA is the highest. AA plus is the next highest. Mortgage-backed securities considered very strong. There's this idea that you can diversify away risk, which makes sense for individual mortgages, but if there's a large-scale collapse, it doesn't matter if you have 100 bad assets. They're all right. going to go down. Right. So there were two main reasons I discovered why these were rated AAA. First, there are hundreds or thousands of mortgages in one MBS, like you said, George, and that diversifies the investment. So if one homeowner doesn't pay the mortgage, it's going to be fine. The second reason is the assumption that people will always pay their mortgage. Who doesn't pay their mortgage? This is the key link in the chain 
uh, that's going to be the first to break. So we're going to watch out for this point because it's it will be very critical later on. The assumption was that when you're paying your mortgage, if the asset is always going up, if your home value is always going up, it's almost like you're getting a good deal on it. You're paying for your house at a value less than it's worth. Well, what happens when those prices go down? We'll find out. And another issue that Murray found was the subprime mortgage. So this is one of the most common terms that you're going to see. You know, if you look up the Great Recession and the housing bubble, when you apply for a loan, the bank or the mortgage lender may accept or reject your application based on your credit history, which will tell them if you are going to pay off your mortgage if they give it to you. So subprime loans are loans given to people with bad credit histories or just low credit scores and stuff like that. Thus, the mortgages are at a higher risk of default. And also, you know, many of these were adjustable rate mortgages, and that means that the interest that you pay on the mortgage itself is going to fluctuate along with the interest rates that the Federal Reserve sets. Part of the problem here was that you had the interest rate is supposed to be in line with how risky the borrower is. So a key problem here wasn't necessarily that they weren't charging the right interest rate to risky borrowers. They were charging them very high rates. The problem was they were giving these teaser rates of 0% or close to 0%. Even if you're a bad creditor, you can pay the first few payments at 0% interest, no problem, and you feel good about yourself. And the banks didn't really think to themselves, wow, once we jack it up to 12% or whatever their rate is, and if prices go down a little, they're just going to stop paying. Like, it's not worth it to them from an incentive standpoint. This, you know, is going to add another level of risk. So if interest rates go up, you're going to have to pay a lot more. And investment banks were running low on mortgages to actually put into their MBSs so, they, so that they could diversify them and give them that high debt rating. So they started accepting more subprime mortgages into the MBSs. And because there were still hundreds of thousands of mortgages in each MBS, it was still considered diversified and therefore stable. Um, even though, you know, the hundreds or thousands of mortgages were individually low in quality or high in risk. Well, I think it's fair to criticize the investment banks for what they're doing. Again, we talk about incentives. If you have willing buyers, even if that is the government, and they're willingly buying your product and demanding more and more and more, and not really saying anything when you're putting worse and worse mortgages in there. If you're able to turn a profit in a couple days, there's an ethical dilemma there, but investment bankers aren't really known for having the strongest ethics in the professional world. But I don't think it's completely right to flame them totally based on the, the incentive structure that existed. Right. So Burry looked at the mortgages within the MBSs, which is a very tedious task. As we said, there are hundreds and thousands of mortgages in here. And he found that a lot of people were paying their mortgages late due to these high interest rates caused by the subprime and adjustable rate mortgages. This was that assumption that everyone pays their mortgage. The assumption that this massive complex house of cards was built on. So he decided to short the housing market and he bet against one of the most stable things on Wall Street. And he accomplished this by convincing investment firms to sell him credit default swaps. Well, credit default swaps sound scary. They're actually not that difficult to think about conceptually, I don't think. We actually talked about them in the spring. So the idea is it's like an insurance policy. If I lend money to Patrick and he doesn't pay me back, or I'm scared that he doesn't pay me back, I can go to the bank and get a credit default swap from them. And 
if he pays me, if I lend him a hundred dollars and he only pays me 50 of that, the bank now becomes responsible for that loan. They pay me $50 and they become responsible for the collection process. So the bank that gives you the credit default swap is going to take the money and assets from the guy you're loaning to and give that to you? They're gonna, they, they are contractually obligated to give you the full amount. You might only have a $25 net worth, and if you've already paid me $50, the bank has to pay me $50 no matter what. So they might be able to get $25 from you or $20 from you through the collection, but they owe me $50 if they originated the credit default swap. Do they have to pay you $50 or do they just need to fill it up so that you get $50? Can you end up with more money than you're technically owed? No. But in most cases, if you're a very bad creditor, you might not have that many assets. And maybe it wasn't the best example using that small quantity of money. But when you think about that in terms of percentages, that's half the loan or 25% of the loan if the bank is able to recover assets, which is a really big number. So taking this back to Michael Burry, he shorted the housing market and he got Goldman Sachs and other investment firms to cover that risk of default with the credit default swaps that we just talked about. At this point, he was insured of his payment in case of the default. But one thing I haven't really figured out, George, is who is he? Who exactly is he betting betting against? He would back bet against these mortgage-backed security companies, or not companies, these specific funds. Like you were saying, they would bundle all these mortgage-backed securities into funds. Like you can think of them maybe like as ETFs or mutual funds, and then selling them to other people. And he's betting against that if these funds go belly up he'll still make whatever they're worth. Gotcha. So he's also buying credit default swaps from the investment banks. So he's A, betting against the investment banks, and B, getting risk protection through these same investment banks? He, he's basically buying insurance through the investment bank for something he doesn't own. So that would be like me buying car insurance for you and... The car insurance company is like, okay, Patrick's the safest driver ever. This is free money. He's just buying an insurance policy on Patrick. Whereas I know that Patrick's got a flat tire and there's like 50% chance he crashes. For me, it looks like easy money. And to the insurance company, it also looks like easy money. In fact, though, Burry doesn't want the investment banks to fail whatsoever because they're, they're contractually obligated to pay him the full amount of these mortgages. What's the one way that contractual obligations go out the window? Default. Or bankruptcy. Right, yeah. Yeah, so if Goldman Sachs goes bankrupt, Burry risks losing most of his money. You put here that he made a personal profit of $100 million and he made $700 million for his investors, which I think ended up being like like four or 500%. It was a pretty incredible percentage, maybe even more than that. But it would have been a lot more if the investors weren't worried that the investment banks would go out of business. So the, the credit default swaps that he bought were only worth 60 or 70 cents of what on the dollar of what they should have been because people are like, oh, if Goldman Sachs goes out of business, we're going to be left holding the bag. So how is Goldman Sachs and these other investment firms able to continue on business after they paid Burry? 
Because if Bury didn't want them to go so, bankrupt until they paid him, then wouldn't that bankrupt them after they did? Bury is still relatively a small fish. So, I mean, $700 million for investors isn't huge for a multi-billion... It, it's big, but not, like, insane for a multi-billion dollar corporation. Bury actually made profit by selling on a secondary market. Going back to the the example with you and insurance, it'd be like if I took out an insurance policy that you're going to crash your car and I think you're going to crash your car and then everyone realizes that you have a flat tire, I can sell that insurance policy to someone else and make a profit because I can sell it for way higher than I bought it for. However, if there's even a slight worry that the insurance company won't be able to pay them, they're not going to pay, let's say it's $20,000 when you crash your car. They don't want to pay $20,000 for the policy. Even if they're 100% positive you're going to crash your car, they're going to discount that based on if they think the insurance company is going to be able to pay or not. So they might only pay me fifteen dollars or $10,000. And that's what happened in the case of Burry. People were paying him less than theoretically what the insurance policy was worth because they were scared the insurance company, in this case the investment banks, wouldn't be able to pay. I wonder what he would actually have made in total if, you know, he was paid, I guess, what all of what he would deserve. And add this fact that a lot of investors in his hedge fund actually withdrew their money from Zion Capital, Burry's hedge fund, because they thought he was just crazy. And, you know, like we said, he's kind of an eccentric guy. So, I mean, their suspicions aren't necessarily unfounded. And something you have to understand about a hedge fund is a lot of hedge funds have like a minimum net worth requirement of like a million dollars or five million dollars. So the investors who were investing, invested with Burry, who pulled their money out, they were pretty smart people too. But again, if someone thinks that there's no way Patrick crashes his car, just like people thought there's no way the housing market crashed, and then they see me buying hundreds of insurance policies against Patrick... They would think I'm crazy, and they'd probably pull out all their money from if I ran a hedge fund doing that sort of thing. The people who ha who kept their money in his hedge fund still had to be pretty trusting of him. However, he, you know, they were aware of his great gains um, during the dot-com bubble. That's a big short as well. And part of it, why Burry is the guy we talk about and not other hedge funds is a lot of other hedge funds provided instant liquidity. If you wanted to withdraw your money, they would give you your money back the next day or a couple days later, and then they would have to reduce their short position. Burry, in some cases, would just ignore investors' phone calls. I'm sure they were pretty mad at the time and thought they were getting scammed, but it turned out well for them. Yeah, in the movie, they show him sending an email to all the investors saying that our contractual agreement says that I can place a hold on all of your additions and withdrawals from the accounts that you put into this hedge fund. So I'm going to restrict your access and basically be a dictator with your money because these are volatile times. Just as we wrap up the show, one thing that I do want to mention is Burry, for how brilliant he was in the dot-com boom in the housing market crisis, he's been predicting a lot of crashes over the past decade, 15 years. He get, actually gets quite a bit of criticism for that. Um, he always seems to be negative. I don't think his fund has underperformed that much, but it is important to note that if you see a tweet that's like, oh, Burry's saying sell everything. He's been it wrong in the past. He's not this infallible 
human, but to have the foresight to see that something that's never happened before was going to happen and to time it correctly is beyond impressive in my eyes. Yeah, the timing thing is what I'm still astounded at because, yeah, at least there is that, you know, the, the data on the sheets on, you know, people are paying their mortgages late. However, he was able to predict when it would collapse. You know, he was doing all this research in, you know, 2003, 2004, and then he predicted that it would collapse in 2007, which is very accurate. And that's the thing. When you take a short position, you only have a few years before you pretty much lose all your money because you have to pay premiums every month. So if you would have started doing this thing in 2003 or 2004, he probably wouldn't have a fund by 2007. And with shorting, you can technically lose an infinite amount of money, right? Because you're not going down to zero like if you buy a stock. But if the stock just goes up and up and up and up, your, I guess, shares value goes down and down and down and down. Yeah, I think credit default swaps are slightly more protection in that, right? But in, in true short scenarios, which I believe he does uh, a little later in his career, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. But that's about all the time we have for today. Like I said, next week we get to talk about something that, in my eyes, is just as interesting. The people who made big bets and lost it all. Patrick, anything to add as we wrap up the show? No, not this time, George. I think I've gotten it all out of my lungs. Well, with that being said, we want to thank you for listening to Wall Street Weekly on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. (laughs) 